You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Okay, so you can all go home now. We're done. (laughs) After that, I, I tell you, I've been in this church for a while now. And I have never seen that before. Um, congratulations uh, to Esteban and Amanda. Esteban, I bet you're glad that she actually said yes. Because that would have been bad otherwise. Uh, as uh, Brian said, my name is Mark Steberg, and I'm part of our South Bay ministry staff here. And uh, if you're a guest today, welcome. We do this every week. We propose, and uh, it's like that. It's just a, a church of love. And uh, no, but do please uh, stop by our guest services table right outside the, ta- uh, the auditorium here. We do have a gift for you if you're a guest for the first time. We do want to get to know you better. Um, and love must be in the air because we actually have another engagement to announce. Uh, we have uh, by a gentleman by the name of Michael Brady. Michael and his beautiful fiance, Flor Solorzano. If you could stand up. Recently engaged. Congratulations to you two lovebirds as well. And uh, very exciting to see. Just a few announcements though before we get into the, the, the lesson here this morning. Um, if you want to come to church next Sunday, don't come here. And we hope you all do want to come to church next Sunday. But we're going to be meeting actually in El Dorado Park, park service regionally down in Long Beach. So that's going to be at 1030 a.m. Uh, be there, be square, so to speak. And then also, we have a Mission Point small group leaders meeting today right after service in the cafeteria. So if, that is one, if you're one of those, please come. We have something very fun planned for you today. And there's a lot of other upcoming events. I encourage you to download the South Bay Church app if you haven't already done that. Um, and you can actually click on register and you can actually sign up for a lot of our upcoming events right there on, on the app. Uh, but we do have, I really, really want to highlight, an upcoming parenting workshop. And I'm sure there are parents here that don't yet have all the answers. I am one of them. And uh, we're going to be doing that, and it's really going to be awesome. It's going to be for all age kids, so from birth to 18 or beyond, if you still need help. Um, And it's going to be three different classes going on based on the age group. Um, I'm very excited that our very own Dr. Calvin and Elaine Johnson are going to be teaching a class for the teens, I understand. Uh, They've been successful parents, have raised amazing children, so we can learn and and sit at their feet and learn for a while. And there's going to be dinner provided at that as well, so please register for that on the the South Bay Church app. Uh, We also have other things. We have a paintball tournament coming up for the men. Uh, There's a summer regional retreat coming up that you can sign up for, so all kinds of things going on. So as Brian said, today we're continuing our sermon series that we've entitled FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions About Christianity. And some of you have been Christians for many, many years. And I'm sure as you've gone out and you've talked about your faith, you've shared your faith with other people, you've probably occasionally gotten questions that can be difficult to answer. And uh, that's the purpose of this series, to help prepare you to answer some of those questions. And if you are not yet a Christian, you're not sure, you know, you may have questions yourself. So hopefully we're able to address some of those through these series. And, you know, last week, Steve Ricci gave us a very informative sermon about what happens after we die. And I don't know about you, but after the video he showed of the decomposing body, I have this image in my head of my cells exploding after I retire, or after I, after I die. I don't know what's going on. Retire, too. 
but you know that's kind of a graphic image he used but I appreciate the scriptures he used to paint the picture of what can happen after we die what, what some of the options are there in the scriptures and if you missed that please listen to it on the replay on uh, the South Bay Church app or you can actually listen to our podcast as well also today on the app, there's an outline of the sermon that I'm going to be doing. So you can go on to the notes section and look at the notes right online. And today I'm going to be addressing a different question. And perhaps it's more of an assertion that perhaps you've heard from people before. And that goes something like this. You know, there are so many different religions today in the world. But when you boil it all down, aren't they all really true at their core in their own way? Aren't different religions just different ways of reaching the same thing, the same ultimate divine reality? You know, can't the same divine being manifest itself through different religions? And, and have you ever heard that view? Somebody espoused that view? It's out there. It's called religious pluralism. And it's the belief that there are two or more religious views that are equally valid or equally true. And it goes beyond the concept that, that religion should just coexist. And it goes and really jumps to the belief that there are many legitimate paths to the same God. And religious pluralism can be contrasted with the concept of exclusivism, which, which is the idea that there's only one religion, only one truth, uh, only one way to God. So we're going to look at two brothers here by the name of Mike and Bob, and they're going to kind of show us a little bit of an example of what religion plur religious pluralism is. It's Mike. It's Bob. Mike and Bob. Bro, Mike, have you seen my dodie? What? Uh, my dodie. We wear it when we gather and chant. Where did I leave that thing? My dodie. It's um, it's an orange cloth. Oh no, I haven't seen it. Do you want anything from the fridge? Nah, I gotta go to this thing. Oh, you were sitting on it. Oh. Sorry. No, a, a sorry is what Indian women wear. It's a common mistake. Uh, well, I gotta ask you, man. Uh, are you, uh... Krishna. Hare Krishna. <laughs> what? Uh, nothing. I just thought... What? You thought Krishnas were something other people did and not your little brother? No. I just thought that... Thought that Krishnas were little freaks because they wear saffron robes and hang out in airports? No. D do they still do that? No, I just thought... What? Just thought what? I thought you were a Mormon. No. Bro, that was like over a week ago. What happened? They kept getting on to me about not having any wives. And this one guy in the church, Elmer, offered me some of his, but... Wait, you think he just might have been joking? I don't know, bro. <laughs> anyway, I'm Krishna now. See you later. Okay. So we're going to come back to Mike and Bob in a few minutes, but I think that is a, a beginning of an illustration of what religion plur, religious pluralism looks like. 
um, you know, is it common today that people believe there are many paths to God? Well, maybe not in this group, but if you go beyond the group that comes to church every Sunday, uh, it's interesting to look at this because Barna Group did a su survey last year and they looked at how many people agree with the statement, do all religions basically teach the same thing? And I was actually surprised to see that almost half of the adults that were surveyed said that, yes, that's true. And if you look at the SBNR, that's spiritual but not religious, people that claim to be spiritual but not religious, obviously it's a much higher percentage of those folks that believe there are many ways to God. But even if you look at those who consider themselves practicing Christians, self-defined Christians, you know, it's almost a third of those people believe that all religions teach the same thing. And so, you know, I think it's important to start elaborating on what is this concept of religious pluralism because we need to define that, we need to define what the arguments are behind that idea uh, because you're going to come across that people every day that actually believe this. And the statistics tell me that even some of the people here today believe that that might be true. So um, we first need to understand why people gravitate to religious pluralism. And then I'll move on and break down three common questions that I think really arise from this idea, which is, number one, are all religions really the same? You know, do they really truly all lead to God in their own way? So we'll talk about that. And then we'll t then talk about what makes Christianity different and why should we believe that Jesus is the only way? And then finally, why do we have so many Christian churches today? You know, why are there so many different flavors of Christianity? Don't, aren't they all really the same when you boil it all down? So that's what we're going to talk about, and let's pray as we get started. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you today. Thank you for uh, what you do in your church and the relationships you develop and, and just the love that you have shown us. I just pray today that you speak to us, God, about this topic. It's one that, that we run into as we're out talking to people uh, on the street and people that we meet every day. And I just pray, God, that you will just uh, enlighten us, use your scriptures to inform us, uh, and use your Holy Spirit to speak to us today so that we go away prepared to answer and also just uh, strengthen and encourage from what you have to share today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So to understand religious pluralism, I think it helps to just take a peek at the landscape of religions around the world for a moment. You know, look at the center graph there, which is basically the, the com composition of the world in 2010 by religion. And you can see by far Christianity, or not by far, but by a significant margin, Christianity is the largest faith. People that claim to be Christian are over 2 billion worldwide. Uh, but the next biggest faith after that would be Islam, and then it would be people that are unaffiliated with any religion. And then the other big ones to round it out would be Hinduism and Buddhism. Those are the biggest religions by number of people in the world. And what's really interesting is how that's going to change over the next 30 to 40 years. So if you look at the graph to your right, by 2050, you can see that what's the fastest growing segment there? It's the green segment, which is Muslim. That's, that's Islam. And it's not that more people are converting to Islam. It's that there are, when you look at the, the, the Islamic faith by demographic, it's a younger demographic. So they're having babies that are born into Islam. <laughs> and that's why you see that growth there. But they're going to be rivaling Christianity in about 30 to 40 years in terms of the number of followers. And if there's ever been a reason to support our global missions effort, I think that illustrates it very well. Uh, on June 4th, we have the opportunity to give our annual missions contribution, which goes to help support our churches in the Middle East. And if we want to see Jesus in those countries that are very difficult in the Middle East, uh, we need to support that effort. That goes to help the people that are laying their life on the line every single day to bring Jesus to a very scary part of the world. But, but this diversity of religion is not new. You know, if, if you go back, way back, time immemorial, humans have worshipped a wide variety of gods. 
And in fact, Christianity was born into a religiously diverse society, which was the Roman Empire. And the Romans basically allowed people to worship whatever god they wanted to as long as they swore allegiance to Caesar. And so the early Christian church grew in an environment of religious pluralism not unlike what we have today. And, and we see a glimpse of that religious culture throughout the book of Acts, but I'm going to specifically hone in today on Acts chapter 17. So if you want to be turning your Bibles there, it's also on the notes on the app if you want to look at that. But this is where Paul visits the city of Athens. We're going to look at that particular account, starting in verse 16. So have you ever been to Athens? Anybody been to Athens before? I had the opportunity to go there in college. It's an amazing city. The Acropolis, that hill that you see depicted there, is still there. And you still have a number of those temples that are still standing 2,000 years later. So it's pretty amazing just to see how the, the Greeks got into these different gods. There's so many different gods that they worshipped. And you see that here starting in verse 16. It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there did, spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So the Athenians had many gods, and when they first heard this message about this Jesus person uh, and his resurrection, their response was similar to what you might hear today if you had just heard that for the first time. They were like, yeah, right. <laughs> Man rose from the dead. I think they probably thought Paul was cuckoo as he was saying a lot of that. So some of them wanted to debate the validity of, of what Paul was saying. They loved to debate. You know, a lot of them called him a babbler. They scoffed at him. A few of them actually did believe. But, but just as Paul in, faced this intense, you know, sort of opposition and resistance to his message about Jesus 2,000 years ago, the environment towards Jesus is very hostile today too, isn't it? And if you, if you actively share your faith, you know that. Uh, you know, I, this week I had the opportunity to share my faith with my dentist and, you know, he just blew me off and, and, and he, he did say, though, uh, in jest, I think, uh, that he believes in the burning bush. And what he said is he believes Moses actually inhaled the burning bush smoke, which was a cannabis plant, which is why, why he heard God talking to him is what he said. And I was like, okay, is that your way of saying you're agnostic or atheist or what? But that's kind of the, what, some of the, the weird reaction you get sometimes when you share or you ask people to come to church. You know, David J. Bosch is a scholar, and Brian Craig shared some of this with me, but, but he maintains that Christians today are facing a crisis of nerve. And it's difficult for us to hold out that Jesus is the only way to God for a number of reasons. You know, society is more secular than it's ever been. You know, it's expected that religion is kept out of the public space. Keep it private, keep it personal, don't talk to me about it. And then we have all the advances in science and technology that, that have raised some, some questions about religion in general. You know, they have geographic boundaries that have blurred. People are immigrating from one country to another. So, so we live and work and play alongside people of various faiths. And we have to know them, we have to interact with them more than we ever have. And also, Christians can be guilty about their past. If you dial the clock back and you know the history of the church, it hasn't always been pretty. 
Sometimes there's been forced conversion, uh, particularly in colonialism, and sometimes there's a sort of a historical guilt about that that makes us reticent to share our faith. But, you know, what's happened then in this Western society we live in is that the exclusivism of Jesus has been really supplanted by this idea of religious pluralism that always lead to God. And this worldview of being, you know, kind of always to God or, or valid, that's genuinely considered more tolerant. It's genuinely considered more enlightened. It's genuinely considered, you know, more politically correct for sure. And the other side of the coin is that if you claim that there is just one way to God, you're viewed as intolerant and you're viewed as, you know, narrow-minded, uneducated, maybe even dangerous or hateful. And we can learn a lot from how the Apostle Paul, you know, really addressed a religious pluralism. And just by looking at that, again, back in Acts 17 and verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And so Paul respectfully challenged the status quo of his day. And, and the Athenians had many idols. And they couldn't even keep track of them all. They had so many. And so Paul told them about the true God who doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he masterfully uses reason to really show the Athenians the fatal flaw in their thinking. If you continue in verse 28, it says, For in him, meaning in God, we live, move, and have our being. This is Paul speaking. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So, so what Paul's doing here is he's brilliant, brilliantly quoting this Stoic philosopher, actually one of their own philosophers, a Greek philosopher by the name of Aratus, who maintained that we're all the offspring of God. So the Greeks actually believe that, that we're all God's children. So Paul reasoned with them. He's like, if we're God's children, humans cannot possibly create their own father. Created things cannot create their own creator. We can't make our father out of stone or wood or, or any other material. So worshiping a man-made idol as a god is very foolish, is very illogical, if you're truly the child of God. And so in the spirit of Paul, I think we need to sort of respectfully challenge the logic of religious pluralism. Because it's not really logical that all religions lead to the truth. And, and I'll be the first to confess, folks, I am not a, an expert in global religions whatsoever. <laughs> There's many people that could speak much more in depth about that than I could. But like Paul, I think you just need to take a stroll around Athens, so to speak. Uh, I, I don't think you have to be an in-depth expert on all the religions to reach a logical conclusion. Because even a cursory overview of the major religions will reveal that they have drastic differences in their most fundamental beliefs. In fact, the major religions actually contradict each other. And so we can apply what's called in classical logic the law of non-contradiction, which is a very simple concept which says two contradictory statements cannot both be true at the same time. <laughs> Pretty basic. Two contradictory statements cannot be true at the same time. 
So let's just take a look at some of the most basic beliefs of these four major religions, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, and let's apply the law, the law of non-contradiction, shall we? Uh, let's just start with the nature of God. Okay, what is God? Who is God? Well, Islam would tell you that there is Allah, the all-supreme, the all-powerful, single, distant God. That's what they believe. Hinduism, on the other hand, believes that there are over 300 million different deities. Okay, Buddhism would say there's no God. Christianity would say, yes, there is one God, and he is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead. So, pretty drastic differences. Is it Allah? Is it 330 million gods? Is it a trinity of gods? Pretty, pretty vastly different concepts, eh? They contradict each other. They could all be wrong, but the law of non-contradiction tells us that they cannot possibly all be right. They can't be, because they contradict one another. What's the sacred text? Is it the Quran? Is it the Vedas? Is it the, I can't even say it, the Pali Tipitika? The Bible? What, where do we get the truth? We can't even agree on that. They could all be wrong, but they cannot all be right. You know, if you look at, at the, the key principles, how do you get to God? I Islam tells you that there are five pillars. That includes prayer and fasting and charity and pilgrimage. You know, the, the Hindus say you have to escape the cycle of reincarnation. Have good karma so, that doesn't, so you stop that cycle. Buddhism says that you need to have the eightfold noble path that involves the right view and the right conduct and the right practice. Christianity says you have to have faith in Jesus. So how do you get to God? You can't all be right. The most, the most astounding contradiction among the religions, however, is that they all claim that they are exclusive, that they're the only way to the divine being. And so if every religion claims that it's the only way, simple logic tells you they cannot all be right. It's like saying, yeah, Jesus is the only way to God. And yeah, yeah, the five pillars of Islam, that's also, that's how you get to God. It doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. And so saying that the religions are all true contradicts what the religions teach about themselves. So we begin to see that it may just be wishful thinking, <laughs> wishful thinking to really believe that all religions are true and lead to God. Pluralism is a convenient conclusion but it's not necessarily a logical conclusion. And I take a young philosopher to school every day. His name is Andy. He's my 12-year-old son. Um, Andy's been studying world religions and social studies. And I was telling him I was going to preach on this and what the topic was. He's like, that's a dumb topic. You know, why? He's like, how could they all be true? That's, that's crazy. That couldn't all be true. Dad, I've studied these. That's impossible. So even my 12-year-old gets this. But even so, there are some people that just stubbornly hold on to this notion that all religions are equally valid. And I run down, I, I, I've run into people that will lay on the tracks for that idea. And, and sometimes I think it's because they visited other countries, they've seen how sincere and how beautiful other religions can be and how happy these people can be in other faiths. And they say, who am I to put my beliefs on them and make them believe what I think they should believe? And so a pluralist can be very dogmatic in his or her assertion that, that, that all religions are true. And ironically, in doing so, they're requiring you to accept their version of the truth. Right. And accepting one version of the truth is the very thing that the pluralist abhors. They hate that. But they're expecting you to accept their version of the truth. So you begin to see the irony and a bit of hypocrisy in the pluralist point of view. Let's just take one more visit to Mike and Bob, shall we? Just two minutes, and let's see how this story ends, because it's kind of interesting.
it's Mike, it's Bob, Mike and Bob. And then she said, uh, well, not in these shoes I won't. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I, just, just a second. Have you seen my planner? You have a planner? Yeah, it's um, green and spiral bound. No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I'm back. Yeah, well, I missed you too. Oh, I, I like that about you. Stand up. Just a second, please. Can you stand up? I'm not sitting on Well, then can I see? I'm not sitting on your planner, Bob. Where did I put that thing? Just one more second. Do you have a meeting? Yeah, I gotta be somewhere at 7.30. Where? It's either a prayer dinner at Holy Rosary, or it's a singles meeting at Temple Bethel. I gotta go. Yeah, I'll call you back. Bob, Holy Rosary is a Roman Catholic church, and, and Temple Bethel is a Jewish synagogue. You can't do that. Do what? You can't be Catholic and Jewish. Why not? You just can't. I don't see what the big deal is. They're pretty much the same thing. No, no, they're not. They're very different. How? Catholics believe in Jesus and Jews don't. But we Jews believe in God. We Jews? You're, you're Jewish now? Well, maybe that's true, but still. And you when can't... I go to the mosque, we pray to Allah. That's just another word for God, right? Go to the mosque? You're a Jewish Catholic Muslim. When I was a Zen Buddhist, we used to meditate on pure light to achieve nirvana. That's just like praying to get to heaven, right? Whatever happened to the Zen thing? And when I was a Hare Krishna, we used to pray to the all-attractive one of the universe. It's just like the Christian God, right? I don't know, Bob. They all pretty much teach the same thing. Love thy neighbor, that's what Jesus said. That's like what Buddha said. It's all the same, right? 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 You know, when, when you boil all this down, the belief that, that all religions are equally valid, you know, I think that requires a much greater leap of faith than simply believing that Jesus is the way, in my opinion. Because as a Christian, I'm no less intelligent, I'm no, less, I'm no more narrow-minded for believing that Jesus is the exclusive way rather than exclusively believing that there are many ways to the truth. And, and Paul proclaimed the truth to the Athenians very clearly in verse 30. He says in Acts 17, 30, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So, so Paul says that God is commanding us to stop creating our own gods. Christianity stands alone as a faith where God became a man and he died and he rose. And that proves that he is real. And we have eyewitness accounts of that and it's recorded in the Bible. I mean, what else could God possibly do to help you understand who he is? I mean, you have to decide, are you going to accept the God of the Bible or are you going to create your own version of the truth?
But just remember this, just because you sincerely believe something doesn't automatically make it true. Which leads to our next question. What really makes Christianity different from other religions? And why should we believe that Jesus is the only way to the truth? You know, to, to address how Christianity is different, I think it helps to consider if authentic Christianity is really a religion at all, as traditionally defined. Because dictionary.com has a very basic definition of religion. Now, I'll grant you that there is no common definition of religion today. There's all, it's all over the map. But if you look at dictionary, this is what it says. It's a set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe, especially when considered as the creation of a superhuman agency, usually involving devotional and ritual observances, and often containing a moral code governing the conduct of human affairs. So that's what the dictionary says religion is. So in essence, a religion helps you to find meaning and purpose and connection to God uh, through rituals, through observances, through a moral code. And if you simplify it even further, you could say that religion helps you to do the right things so that you can experience the divine. And religion is fundamentally based on what you do to find God. So if we apply that definition to the major faiths of the world for a moment, Islam is definitely a religion because it's all about your salvation being through what you do to please Allah by following those five pillars. It's all about what you do. Hinduism is a religion because, as I understand it, the Hindus work very hard to try to escape karma and the cycle of reincarnation. And they believe they can reach nirvana by their own effort. Buddhism is a religion because it's about achieving enlightenment, enlightenment through your own effort. So there are billions of sincere people today that, that are working very hard through these religions to arrive at something supernatural. They're pursuing this elusive state of divine bliss, hoping that somehow they'll be rewarded in the next life for how they lived. But as we think about what religion really is, I'd like to propose to you that authentic Christianity is totally different, vastly different. Because I would say that real Christianity is not a religion in the traditional definition. And let me explain. Traditional religion requires you to work your way to God. Christianity, in contrast, has a God that has worked his way to you. And when you really have faith in Jesus, finding God is not based upon your own effort. And in fact, when we believe that mankind, it, it, we believe that he, man cannot earn God's favor by following a moral code. You can read in the Old Testament how the Jews tried over and over again to follow God's law and they repeatedly failed and they failed miserably. And all of us, no matter how hard we try to live up to God's standard, we all fall short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible tells us. And that's offensive to some people to hear that. But it's true. And that is the starting point of the gospel of Jesus. You know, in Titus 3, Paul writes to Titus, he says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness of the, and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us, he saved us, through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So as Paul reminds Titus, we're not saved by the righteous things we have done. 
in Christianity. In his amazing love and mercy, Jesus saves us when we are at our worst. Living in malice, living in envy, living in hatred. He saves us when we're foolish and disobedient and enslaved by sin. And personally, I am so grateful for that, that God is that way. He rescued me, God rescued me personally at just the right time. And I was enslaved to sin. When I look back at my life, I was enslaved to sin. I was powerless to change. And then a beautiful young woman named Mia Randolph came into my life. And, you know, she invited me to church. And what was going on in my life at that time, though, is I, before I was a Christian, I was regularly getting drunk. You know, I, I looked at pornography regularly, and I had been in a number of sexually immoral relationships that had really just been emotionally devastating, both to me and to the women involved. And I was a slave to my sin. I, I, I deserved to be condemned as the sinful wretch that I was. But instead of condemning me, what did God do? He introduced me to some men, some righteous men, who offered to study the Bible with me and help me to understand the consequence of the way I was living. And they helped me to understand through the Bible that I could actually have forgiveness through Jesus. And, and, and I'm forgiven not because of what I have done or my own efforts because, I, because I've deserved it or I've earned it, but I'm forgiven because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Vastly different than religion. So Christianity stands alone as a faith where God actually loves mankind enough to become immortal and to die for us. And Jesus died once for all of us and he raised from the dead to intercede for us before the Father and so we can become an heir with the hope of eternal life. And again, that has nothing to do with your morality or your own goodness. And so Christianity is entirely different than religion. So don't hear me wrong, however, because morality does have a place in Christianity. And Jesus is very concerned with how you live your life. He is. But here's the crucial difference. Living a good moral life is the outcome of your salvation. It's not what earns your salvation. It's the outcome of your salvation, not what earns your salvation. We live good lives because of what Jesus did for us, not to win his favor. And personally, I tried so many times before I was a Christian to change and to be a better person by just trying harder. You know, when I used to get really drunk, I'd be, usually be hung over the next day and I'd reflect on all the stupid things I'd done the night before and I would just, I would just be embarrassed. I'd say, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore. And then a few days later, what am I doing? back at it again. I was a slave. And so at 25, when I, when I studied the Bible and I turned myself into Jesus, I was baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. All that stuff was wiped away. And what happened is I received the Holy Spirit, God literally living inside of me. And, and, and I've learned that it's only that Spirit of God living inside of me that really gives me the power to change and to turn away from my sin. Because when I became a Christian, I did turn away from those outward sins that I talked about earlier. By the power of God, I turned away from those sins. But, but the longer I'm a Christian, the more I've realized that it's not just the outward sins, it's my heart. My heart is sinful. And, you know, recently the Holy Spirit's really helped me to see that I have a lot of anger. And, and I, I often can sin to my anger, and it's usually against my, my wife and my kids. I lash out and, and verbally lash out in anger to them and, and act rashly. But, but I thank God that he still hasn't condemned me despite my continued failure. And he's given me his word. He's given me the Holy Spirit to help me repent. And he's given me other Christians, other men in my life who are trying to help me change and be more righteous in this area. So, so why believe that Jesus is the only way? 
it's always going to require faith, folks. It always requires faith. But as I think about my changed life, and as I think about all the changed lives of all of you that I've seen over the years, I know there is plenty of living proof that Jesus is real. And unlike any religion, God comes to us. And I don't know about you, but I can actually follow and love a God who loves me enough to pursue me and to die for me. And that kind of love motivates me to follow him and to live a moral life. So lastly, you may say, well, that sounds really nice, Mark. Salvation by grace and love, kumbaya, very attractive. But I'm still confused. I'm still confused. If it's that simple... Why does Christianity have so many different churches, so many different denominations out there that all emphasize different things? Are all Christians really the same? You know, I believe more and more people are also saying, I love Jesus, but I don't need anything with that church. I do not need organized religion. Thank you very much. I'll be a Christian on my own. You know, and so these are perfectly valid questions that I think someone has to ask when they look at modern Christianity. What is an authentic Christian and why do I need church? And during his ministry on earth, Jesus spent a lot of time explaining what an authentic follower of his should look like. And Jesus called them his disciples. He never actually used the term Christian. That didn't come from Jesus. That was given later by the world to people that followed Christ. Jesus called them his disciples. And before Jesus went back to heaven, his very last command, which many of you have memorized, Matthew 28, was to go and make disciples of all nations. He wanted everyone to be a what? A disciple. Does that include you? Does it include me? Yes. He didn't command people to be Catholic. Go make Catholics of all nations. Go make Lutherans of all nations. Go make Methodists of all nations. That's not what he said. Go make disciples of all nations. And a disciple of Jesus is defined by him in the Bible. Not by a pope or not by a priest or not by a creed. It's defined in the Word of God. In John 8, Jesus says something profound to those who believed in him. The people that believed in him, he said, hey, it's great you believe in me, but if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples, and then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's John 8, 31. So Jesus expects more than just a mental nod to who he is. He expects way more than that. He, he actually wants lo his love to transform who you are as you hold to his teachings. And you can, you can really spot an authentic Christian by their life. Not just by what they believe. Not by just a prayer they prayed, it, they prayed Jesus into their heart. That's not how you tell an authentic Christian. You tell a Christian, you know, you tell a Christian by, do they give? Do they forgive? Do they serve? Do they pray? And more than anything, you can identify, uh, you know, an authentic Christian by their love. Do they love the way Jesus loved? Because that's what Jesus calls them to do. And we have so many great examples of that, of authentic Christianity here in South Bay Church. And I can't even begin to list them all, and I don't want to leave anybody out, but I'll just name a few that I've seen lately. Kevin and Tianli Richardson. I just love them, and I'm going to embarrass them and put them on the spot. But these guys serve tirelessly. You know, first impressions, they're here every week before I get here oftentimes. They, 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 I can't even get them out. I've, I've got them down to every other week now. But they just want to keep serving. They just love God. They, lo they want to serve. You know, I think of, of, of Sarah Rivera. Shows up with a smile every week and prepares our communion. 
And Sarah's just a beautiful person, beautiful response to Jesus. I think it's Caesar Breeder, Brito, running around, taking pictures, serving, communion, whatever. He's a jack of all trades. I think of Ping and Ling, Chang, right there, smiling. They, I had to snatch them out of kingdom, kids, to get them to serve in first impressions. I'm like, you can't have them, Dustin. I'm taking them because they're so nice and loving and friendly. I think of Jaime and Edelin Monte Clara. I don't know if they're here, but they also just eager to serve. I think of Dan and Lisa Rally, just so serving, so loving. I love them to death. And I could go on and on and on. But these are, these are people whose life show that they really believe in Jesus because they're holding to his teaching. They love him. But in today's world, there's more and more people who say they love Jesus that want nothing to do with the church. Maybe they've become disillusioned by what they've seen when they look at modern Christianity because they haven't seen the real thing. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because Jesus himself spoke about the future in Matthew 24, in verse 12, where he says, because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You know, just to put it bluntly, <laughs> many self-professing Christians look nothing like a disciple of Jesus. Their love has grown cold. And many self-professing Christians have become so wrapped up in their own comfort and their own traditions that those who observe their lives want nothing to do with that sort of hypocrisy. And even so, there's never an excuse to flee church entirely. That's a cop-out, and it's never justified. Jesus didn't design Christianity to be a solo sport. You know, he calls the church his body. And if a part of the body is cut off, it's not going to live for long, is it? And that's why Jesus said you need to stand firm to the end. Because I tell you, folks, if you're looking for the perfect church, you're not going to find it. We all sin against each other. That's why Jesus tells us to forgive one another and to love because we will sin against each other. And if you think you can be a disciple on your own, good luck. Good luck. Talk to me in about three days. You'll want some help. I promise you'll be disappointed. Perseverance is required. I believe what's needed today more than ever is authentic Christianity. We need people who study the Bible and they encounter the real Jesus and what he's really done, his forgiveness. And we need people that allow that love of Jesus to permanently transform who they are. We need people whose gratitude for their salvation, for the cross, motivates them to live as authentic disciples of Jesus. People who lay down their life for, 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 for others. People who are willing to give up everything for Jesus. People who pray as Jesus prayed. People who serve as Jesus served. People who forgive as Jesus forgave. And more than anything, people who love as Jesus loved. So my friends, Christianity is not all the same by any stretch. You should look and strive for the real thing. As my friend Bill Anderson says, Christianity light is not Christianity at all. So as I close, let me just make this personal for you. If you once decided to be a disciple of Jesus and you were baptized, does this description of an authentic Christian still fit you in all regards? And if it doesn't, be honest, if you don't really know, ask somebody that knows you really well. Does it still fit you? And if it doesn't accurately describe you, it's time to get back in touch with Jesus and what he has done for you on the cross. Get back in your Bible. Get open with your discipling partner about where you really are. And repent. <laughs> Change. Times of refreshing will come. 
And if you're not sure if you're a disciple or you know you're not a disciple of Jesus yet, are you willing to study the Bible with us? Because any member of South Bay Church will sit down with you and we'll go through a series of personal Bible studies and we'll help you to understand what exactly Jesus offers you, what he offers you, and also what he wants from your life, what he expects from you as a disciple. So we'll do that with you. We've covered a lot of ground today. It was a big topic. <laughs> but my prayer is that now you're a little better equipped, perhaps, to address some of those frequently asked questions about Christianity. All religions are not the same. They do not all lead to God. Christianity is different. I argue it's not a religion at all. It's the only true faith where God saves us by his love and by his grace, not by our own efforts. And finally, Christianity, not all Christianity is authentic. Strive for and look for the real thing. And let's get in touch with the salvation and the forgiveness that Jesus offers response to all that, let's serve, let's forgive, let's pray, and most importantly, let's love. That's authentic Christianity. That is what's going to truly change your life, and that's going to change the world around us. Thank you so much. Love you all. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.